0: this evening we're going to consider the King's joy is in the Lord. The King's joy is in the Lord, Psalm 21. I'll just have a little look around, yeah, there's a few people with grey hair. Those of you who are old enough, do you remember the craze, the magic eye images in the 80s? Do you remember them at all? Magic Eye Images. If you look at the images in a certain way, perhaps squint your eyes a little bit, get the focus right, and another image pops out of the picture that you're looking at. Do you know what I'm talking about? In the 80s, I used to work as a store detective in various central London bookshops, the big bookshops like Foils, if you've heard of Foils, and various other big bookshops in London. And when I wasn't busy, when I wasn't busy watching people who, should we say, had ideas of using the shop as a, a lending library without any intention of returning the books, I couldn't get enough of those magic eye books, and I was—I'd spend ages just staring at the things, and I became quite good at looking at the images, and and then whatever it is would pop out of it. Uh, not everyone can do that, and I find it frustrating as someone who can it, it frustrates me when i 've shown a magic eye image to someone and they 're staring at it and i 'm getting annoyed with them because they can 't see the image coming out of it uh, but that 's how it is. not everyone can um, see the images in the magic eyes books whereas I could and and many others, I'm sure, can fairly quickly and fairly easily. When it comes to the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to most of the people in the world, most people are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's how they come into the world. They don't become dead in trespasses and sins. They they come into the world um, with the sin of Adam, Adam's sin, original sin and they're just dead in trespasses and sins and for those people it's the gospel of Christ is foolishness, utter foolishness and maybe you've had that experience where you're getting excited about the gospel, you're trying to talk to someone about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're just glazed over or they've got a deadpan expression and it that's quite frustrating and of course it's all the grace of god and as you're talking to them and they're they're falling asleep you pray that god would deal with them according to his grace and his mercy but it's foolishness whereas those who are trusting in the lord jesus christ as their savior from sin they have eyes to see the gospel for what it is, the power of God unto salvation, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. There's no greater message than the gospel message, that message of salvation from sin. And standing before God in a righteousness that is not your own, that kind of righteousness is not worth a thing. It's filthy rags in God's sight. But standing before a holy and righteous God, washed in the blood of Jesus, clothed in his righteousness. That's the gospel, isn't it, essentially? It's beautiful. Beautiful to those who believe. But again, to those who don't believe, it's nothing. For me, Psalm 21 is somewhat like those magic eye images of old. I say that because in the first instance it can be read as a psalm about its writer King David and the victories that the Lord gave him over his enemies. David was the king of Israel for 40 years and he was said to be a man after God's own heart so keep that in mind David king of Israel man after God's own heart. That said, and this shouldn't surprise you, David was a type of Christ. Who according to his humanity is a descendant of King David. However, Jesus is not the king of an earthly Israel. He is the head of the Israel of God, which is the church. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. If you prayerfully and carefully look at Psalm 21, the right way, with discerning eyes, you might just see beyond King David and King Jesus will pop out of that psalm and you'll see him from start to finish. How about that? Let's see if we see King uh, King Jesus in this Psalm of David. Let's have a look again at verse 1. Verse 1 there. It's written that the king shall joy in thy strength. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ shall rejoice, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. To understand that, you need to understand that even though Jesus is the eternal Son of God, he is also a man Matthew 27 verse 32 tells us that the soldiers found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross, to bear the cross of Jesus. Why do you think that is? How about because no matter how much more the soldiers beat the Lord Jesus Christ, there was nothing that would be able to... Uh, get Jesus to carry his own cross he'd already been beaten and scourged and rendered unrecognisable he had trenches filled with blood upon his back he had become too weak to carry the cross himself Jesus the man Perhaps in our desire to proclaim and exhort the Son of God, we tend to overlook the fact that Jesus is a man. If you have a heavenly hope and inheritance, it is precisely because God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus came into this world as a man and in subjection to God's law. What that means is that the Son of God became flesh and as a man living under the law he lived a perfectly sinless life and he did so dear Christian on your behalf. That's why he did it. He didn't have to. He is the sinless Son of God. Again I think we, we, we in our eagerness to make much of the divinity of Christ we tend to overlook that Jesus is A man, perfect man, sinless man. It's worth remembering that, by the way, the next time you're in conversation with one of the folk from the Watchtower and Track Society, because they'll try and they'll they'll home in on all those verses that that speak of Jesus being a man, getting tired, sleeping in the ship, and, and so on, being thirsty on the cross. So on and so on and so on. Embrace it all, just as you embrace the fact that he is the eternal son of God. He's both. Perfect man and perfect God. That perfect obedience of God, or of the incarnate son of God, was in life and in death. As it is written in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So you see that obedience in life and in death. When Jesus was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die in obedience to God, he carried in his own body the sins of all whom his father gave gave him. Coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ rejoicing in the strength of the Lord in verse 1 of Psalm 21. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane prior to his arrest, the night before he was crucified, in agony, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And his father sent an angel from heaven, not to bring relief to him, but to strengthen him. That's what we're told. The, the angel came to strengthen him for what light ahead. And then the next day, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame for the heavenly joy that was set before him. That is, the joy of taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, having completed the work that his father sent him to do. Furthermore, it is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ that his joy, In other words, a divine joy, the joy of the incarnate Son of God. His joy be the portion of all his redeemed, all whom he shed his blood for. That means you, dear Christian. We know that to be the case because just before Jesus endured the agony of the cross, he prayed the following words to his father concerning his disciples. Again, that's you as well, dear Christian. By extension, you you trust in Jesus, you follow him as one of his disciples. And this is what he prayed to his father. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't that wonderful? The prayer of Jesus, that we should have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. Therefore, whatever your lot, dear Christian... whatever difficulties, sorrows, or heaviness of heart you may have. Rejoice in your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, with joy unspeakable. Why is it a joy unspeakable? Because it is a joy that is not of this world. It is not a joy that you somehow have to muster up within yourself. But rather, it is a joy that comes to you from above. And in your frailty, may his joy be your strength. Looking at verse 2. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and has not withholden the request of his lips. What do you imagine was the heart desire of the Lord Jesus Christ? Amongst other things, Jesus prayed to his father, that upon completion of the redemptive work that he came into the world to do, his Father would glorify him with the glory that he had with him before the world was. And that prayer has been answered with Jesus now highly exalted and, as I said before, seated at the right hand of the throne of God with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. But also, those whom Jesus sacrificially laid down his life for, figure greatly in his heart's desire. For example, in and of yourself, you have nothing whatsoever to commend yourself with to God. But... If you belong to Jesus, having trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and for everlasting life, you can be sure that Jesus has prayed to the Lord that <clears throat> whilst you remain in the world, you will be kept from the evil. Kept from the evil, that is, the evil without and within. The Lord your God will surround you with loving kindness and with tender mercies. You can be sure of that. Jesus also prayed that when you die, you go to be with him where he is to behold his glory. I keep coming out with that one, don't I? I'm obsessed with it. It's beautiful. Rest assured that all those things and much more besides will most certainly happen because the requests that reach the Lord come from the heart of his only begotten son, and they proceed from his lips. As such, you can be sure that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, his son. Looking at verse 3, For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. When the Lord Jesus Christ stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And in his reply Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Not long after that, King Jesus was crowned with thorns and he was mocked. He was beaten before being nailed to a wooden cross. However, a dying thief, thief who was crucified alongside Jesus saw something of his divine majesty and with repentance towards God that dying thief said to Jesus Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom it seems that he knew something that dying thief didn't he remember me when you come into your kingdom He was dying next to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was also dying. And still, clearly, that dying thief had a hope that would reach up to heavenly glory, to paradise. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said to him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. King Jesus is no longer nailed to a cross, no longer wearing a crown of thorns, neither is he dead in a tomb. Having triumphed over sin, Satan and death and with his resurrection, he who made himself of no reputation when he came down from his throne into this dark world of sin is highly exalted and he is crowned with glory and with honour in heaven where he reigns over all things for the good of his church. The Apostle John wrote the following words in the book of Revelation concerning a heavenly vision that John had. John says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. That is a picture of judgment at the end of the world, with King Jesus sitting upon his throne of glory, with a sharp sickle in his hand. Until that day comes, repentant sinners are turning to Jesus, and by the grace of God, they are trusting in him. They are being transferred from the devil's dark domain and they are being um, transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, where they serve God in this world as royal priests and children of the Most High God. And with they do so with a certain promise that when they die, they will go to be with their king in paradise. We'll drop down to verse 7. For the king trusteth in the Lord and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. In verse 7 it is written that the king trusteth in the Lord. That unwavering trust of the Lord Jesus Christ in God is perhaps best seen at the cross. For example, when the Lord laid upon his Son the collective iniquity of all the elect of God and laid that heavy burden of sin upon his own Son at the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As such, it's reasonable to say that even though Jesus delighted in doing his Father's will, and he always did the things that pleased his father, and despite his father being well pleased with his son, Jesus nevertheless experienced the divine wrath, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all he came to save. Still, Jesus owned the Lord as his God, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As I say, his trust in God was unwavering. Also, at the moment of his death, and with the joy that was set before him, Jesus entrusted his spirit to his father when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The level of trust shown by the Lord Jesus Christ in life and in death ought to be the reality for all who are in him. This is not to say that we're the same of Jesus. Not by any means. But think about this. It was clearly the reality for the dying thief. Dying on that cross. And he said what he said there. Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That man had the hope of glory. His trust was in Jesus, King Jesus. Also there was King David who said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See, it, it is a reality. All who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ have a certain hope that reaches up to heaven With saving faith comes a hope that is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Before we come to a close, we'll briefly look further down to some very solemn, very sobering warnings for all who oppose the Lord. Let's have a look again at verses 8 through to 13. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shall thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. For they intended evil against thee, They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back, when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so will we sing and praise thy power. Looking at verse 8 again, there. Let's have a look at it again. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies, thy right hand shall find out all, uh, find out those that hate thee. Who are the ones who hate the Lord? And then in verse 9, there thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger, the Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath the fire shall devour them. Who are these people who hate the Lord and the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire shall devour them? Who do you imagine those people are? Murderers? Yeah, perhaps. Pedophiles? Rapists? I could go on, couldn't I? various abominations I could come out with there, there's no need. Because the answer to it, those who hate the Lord and those whom the Lord will swallow up and those whom the fire shall devour, there's anyone Anyone and everyone who is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Anyone. Because we've all sinned. We all come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no not one. The wages of sin is death and hell's destruction. Therefore anyone from the least to the greatest in the world who has never trusted In King Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins is an enemy of God. And the wrath of God abides on all those people. Read it for yourself, the very last verse of John chapter 3. Look again at verse 9. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. There will be a final judgment. This is speaking about the day of judgment when the king shall sit upon the throne of his glory. King Jesus shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And all that offends, all the enemies of God, all those who have never repented of their sins never trusted in Jesus, will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be with the devil and with his demons forever and ever in conscious torment. The Lord has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. If you have not already done so, get down, prostrate yourself before God, don't wait until you have to do that on the day of judgment, when every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't wait until then, get on your belly before the throne of God's grace, in repentance, and and cry out to God for mercy. Repent and believe in King Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins." Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen.